Not too long ago, Susan and I were watching women's snowboarding in the Olympics, cheering on Team Canada, and the first few snowboarders were doing their thing, and we were blown away. I mean, we were absolutely blown away by what they were able to do. Mind-blowing. But we found that after you watch about 20 snowboarders, you're like, hmm. At one point, this woman goes off and does about 100 flips in the air and lands perfectly on the ground. And, and Susan's like, ah, when she did the egg flip, she didn't do the double grab. You know what I mean? It's like, how do you go from sheer amazement to, ah, I've seen better. If you've been in, in church for any length of time, if you've been a... A, a, a Christian who has looked at the scriptures and read the scriptures, it, it's, familiarity has a tendency of doing things to us where we, we move from amazed by grace and the goodness of God and what Jesus has done and who he claimed to be and what he has taught. We can move from that as amazement to... Ah. But you know, the announcers, they never seem to lose their passion because there's a difference. Susan and I are watching as spectators. We're spectators. We have no intention of doing anything with what we're seeing. We're not putting any of it into practice. We're just spectating. Whereas some of those color commentators, they're athletes. They've done it, or they are doing it. So they, they have this endless excitement about it because they're engaged with it. And my encouragement to you as we come to this text today, as we come to every text in Scripture, is to not be a spectator. You can sit back and go... I've seen better, I've heard better, I'm not sure. But to be like, how is it that I will live in light of this? We've been going through 1 John, his letter to encourage the church to be at rest and and, and in stability at time of great instability. And John has been encouraging this young church to be people of joy when you live in a world that endlessly drains your joy. 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18 to 25. Children, it is the last hour, and you've heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is God's word. Well, if this is your first Sunday with us here, or your first Sunday watching from home, you have picked a Sunday you will probably not soon forget, because it's not often you come to texts that talk about the Antichrist. There's only five 
in the entire Bible because the Antichrist is a term that John uses as one of the authors to describe uh, those who would speak about Jesus in a way that is totally contrary to the way that Jesus spoke about himself. Uh, the Bible is written by 40 different authors. It's 66 books comprised and came together over a period of approximately 1,400 years. And you need to just sit, that, sit in the literary impact of that. That after gen- generation after generation, you can't just throw a Hail Mary into the future and hope that somebody's going to pick up the story. The Bible is an epic surrounding Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he has come to do, what he would accomplish through the cross. Enter the, an epic around the divine, not just only the, the life of Jesus, but his divine resurrection. That he is God incarnate, that he has come. So John uses this language, which hits us in the ear like a snowball and gets our attention. Using this language of the Antichrist. So we're going to look at this today, and before I get into it, a 30 second summary to give you context for why he's even talking this way. The letter is warm. He's calling them children. He's an old apostle at this point in his life. He's around 90 years old. And he wants the church to be stable under the shadow of the rise of totalitarian uh, Rome, emperor worship, and the crushing persecution coming down, threatening to essentially extinguish the church in the first century. He's writing to stabilize the church. He's inviting the church into spiritual disciplines like confession of their sin, loving each other in the, in the church community, those little local churches, loving the people sitting next to us on Sunday morning, caring for the needs that we become aware of in our little churches all around the world Sunday morning. He's writing for that purpose. And he wants the church to uh, walk out these spiritual disciplines so that we can be encouraged in the love of God in this ongoing fellowship. So this section right here, His desire is that they would have this soul-anchoring fellowship with God and this Antichrist teaching that has shown up here in about 90 AD uh, from various teachers. It's threatening that fellowship. So the false teaching is what he's calling the Antichrists. You can see there he said, many have already come. And since that point, many others have come. So it's nothing new. And it's not anything that that the apostle is even necessarily alarmed about. And I'll unpack that. Uh, a little bit later, but he's talking about it because he doesn't want the church um, led astray. So we're going, we're going to look at um, these things uh, and be encouraged by it because not only is he saying, you know, recognize the characteristics of Antichrist teaching, but he's also in this passage, as you can see there, saying, uh, you know, you actually have the power to discern that Antichrist teaching, and so you won't get led astray by it. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Um, The first being the Antichrists and their message to the church. I'll unpack that a bit. Secondly, the Spirit of Christ giving discerning power to the church. And then lastly, abiding in Christ always stabilizes and preserves the church. So first, let's look at the the Antichrists and their message. You look at verse 18, he says it's the last hour. You know, in the New Testament, writers weren't all you know, messing up gloriously, thinking Jesus was returning in five minutes and they all got it wrong. They all used that language because they understood that from the point that the, the tomb was empty, after the crucifixion, Christian faith is not based on a missing body. Christian faith is based on a resurrected body that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw. And it was because of the resurrection of Jesus that was witnessed by those who saw the resurrected Christ 
that the church exploded through Rome and wasn't snuffed out by Rome. So the language of the last hour is a way of all these New Testament writers saying between the time that Christ rose from that grave and ascended uh, when, he, when he disappeared before the apostles and he leaves the physical realm that you and I enjoy and he goes into the realm of God, between that time and the time that Christ promised to return where he will come back and restore all things, he will judge the living and the dead, he will raise us from death in the same way that Christ's resurrection was physical and tangible. Our resurrection will be physical and tangible. And this beautiful world that God created in the beginning, he will restore in the end. Between those two times, that's the last hour. From our point of view, it's taken quite a, lot, a while. The church has been preaching about Jesus for 2,000 years. From our human point of view, what's going on? Well, God is eternal. And when you're eternal, that we're kind of in the last few seconds from an eternal sort of standpoint. So there have been particular, er- particular eras of fierce persecution and, you know, um, and uh, the church sort of, you know, struggling under all of these things. There's been ex- periods of growth and loss in the church. All of this has happened many times, and the apostles not moved by it. He doesn't want the church to be moved and swayed and led astray by any of it. Anti-Christ, anti means instead of or standing in the place of. So what John, John when he uses that term here and then four other times in his writing, he's saying that there, these people are standing in the name of Christ, and they're naming the name of Christ, but they're actually denying all the claims of Christ. That sort of anti-God, anti-Christ teaching has been around since Genesis 3, the first time it was recorded in the garden, when the enemy of our souls speaks to our first parents. What does he say? He says to them, did God really say that? So this is sort of the anti-God language, the, the using reason uh, where I'm now going to stand over God. I'm not going to try and understand him, I'm going to stand over him. I'm going to use my reason uh, in a magisterial sort of a way. I'm not going to try and understand what the Bible is saying to me. I'm not going to try and understand what Jesus said about himself. I'm going to stand over what Jesus said, and I'm going to say, actually, this is, this is what Jesus meant. That is, by nature, anti-Christ. And he says many have come, and when he writes this, it's only been about 50 years since the, the resurrection of Jesus, and so many have already at this point come and changed, you know, what Jesus sort of said about himself. That's what's going on historically. He doesn't want the church shaken by any of this. At this point, for three centuries, really what was being said about Jesus by the uh, the Gnostics, it was Gnosticism that he was responding against, and they kind of said two things about Jesus that the church spent about 300 years refuting in the first council of Nicaea, 325 AD. This is what they were saying. Well, Jesus wasn't God. He was a human being. He was born a human being, and then when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and sort of infused Jesus with God at his baptism. And then when he was on the cross, because we know that God can't die, the Spirit left Jesus, and then the human Jesus died. That's what the Gnostics were saying. That's not, that's not what Jesus said about himself. Jesus was saying the, the reason Jesus was on a cross was not because he was loving the poor and caring for people and doing miracles. That's not why he was on the cross. He was on the cross because he was saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And, every, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were like, that's heresy. God cannot be a man. We've got to kill this guy. So the Gnostics had come up with this idea, well, Jesus isn't God and man. He's either only a man who was sort of infused with God for a short period of time, 
Or other Gnostics would say, you know, deny his humanity and say, well, his, his body was just a phantasm. They were saying all these things. The bottom line is, it wasn't what Jesus said about himself. And so what they did was, they, what, what it, that movement, that anti-Christ sort of teaching led to was sort of like a, a disembodied faith. They ended up leaving all of the things that Christ instituted about church. So that's what John's saying. is like they left the church. But people can leave churches for lots of reasons, and they're not all because they're the Antichrist. In COVID, there's been a mighty shuffling of the sheep. Some people have left this church and are worshiping elsewhere because we've chose that, you know, wearing masks is helpful for our neighbors, and other churches have said we feel differently, and so they move. But they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They believe in the resurrection. Some people, some of you are here because of that. You came from other churches that handled it differently. Well, that's not about being Antichrist. They said, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're walking things out very, very differently, right? You could leave churches for different reasons. That's not this. This is this abandonment of the church, this disembodied faith. Well, I can believe in Jesus, but I don't have to follow the teachings of Jesus. I can pick and choose, and I don't have to be a part of this institution called the church. I can just be an individual spiritualist over here, and say I'm okay with Jesus. And John goes, we're not even close. And that's what the, the movement led to. The significance of this is because the things that Jesus instituted are for renewal and they are eternal. So there's things that human beings have instituted about church. Maybe they're helpful. And some of the things human beings instituted about church have not been helpful. So modern conversations around deconstruction and deconstructing church, well, sometimes there are good things that ought to be examined and deconstructed. Right? For example... Um, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, hey, in Galatians 3, who bewitched you guys? You think you're saved, not on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, but on the basis of your works. That's works righteousness. You don't do good things hoping that heaven will notice so that in the end God will accept you. That's not how, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, you've got to deconstruct all of those ideas and get back to the fact that we are accepted by God on the basis of what Christ has done for us and we trust in his perfection. So there's an example in Galatians 3 of Paul saying, sometimes teaching can get off, it should get deconstructed. Another example would be, um, as I look down at my notes and try and find myself with my aging eyes here, <laughs> uh, other, other conversations around deconstruction would be in the, in the, um, uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation. The church was saying in the, in the 1500s, hey, God responds to cold, hard cash. If you want your sins forgiven, give the church money. So that, that's like, well, we have to deconstruct that. Jesus never taught that. There's examples. Modern day, we may need to deconstruct things. However, there are things that Jesus instituted that should not be deconstructed. What did Jesus say about himself? He didn't say, I'm a good teacher. He didn't say, I'm a prophet. He said, I, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me, I'm God. Well, we don't deconstruct that. When Jesus instituted the church... The, the Lord's Prayer, and we prayed it this morning, it's a, the, player, the prayer is in the plural, meaning he's expecting that the church is gathering together. We don't deconstruct that. When Jesus gives the Lord's table, which we will celebrate at the end of the service with the bread and the cup, he says, this is how you remember my death and resurrection. Well, communion is communal. You don't stay home by yourself and give yourself the bread and the cup and say, I had communion today. No, you didn't, because you weren't communing with the believers. It's communal. So there's things, we don't deconstruct things and just go, well, it's all, you know, I'm okay with Jesus. So even in the times of John, they were, there was weird deconstructive teaching that was totally against what Christ had instituted. So yes, the church in the first century was incredibly organic 
but it was an organized organism. When the church becomes an organization and the organization starts doing things that Jesus never did, it's appropriate to deconstruct the organization. But what we don't do is say, let's just kick the ladder out and who cares what Jesus taught and let's just preside over the text and let's just decide from the beginning, hey, maybe we can't trust institutions, maybe we can't trust 2,000 years of church scholarship, let's just start over with a blank page. That sort of nonsense was happening in the first century. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we sort of... um, have these um, thoughts around appropriately deconstructing things or inappropriately deconstructing things is what is the goal in the deconstruction? Is the goal to more closely resemble Jesus or at the end of my deconstruction will I bear no resemblance to Jesus? Is the goal of the deconstruction that at the end of the deconstruction the church looks more like the church that Christ instituted or at the end of that deconstruction do I bear, does the church bear no resemblance to the New Testament church that Christ instituted. So these are the sorts of things that were even happening at the time of John. And you see his concern is not Rome and some antichrist out there. You can see very plainly it's it's teachers that came out of the church who say, hey, I've been enlightened. I have secret knowledge and, uh, you know, follow my teachings, subscribe to my podcast. Here's what Jesus is up to. And John is saying, that's not resembling what Jesus said himself. Verse 23, he says, uh, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. In other words, if you leave the church of Jesus because you deny the deity of Jesus, and you refuse to bend your knee to the lordship of Jesus, or you have no use for Jesus, then don't say you and God are still okay, because they're one and the same. So it's provocative what the apostle is sort of getting here too. He's saying Jesus didn't just say, I'm a nice guy, pick and choose from my words. Jesus, Jesus wasn't a nice guy. He said things that just regular nice guys would never say. For example, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's eternal language. So he wasn't just a nice guy doing nice things. He wasn't just a prophet saying, hey, I'm a prophet. I'm one more voice and the long line of voices talking about God. Jesus explicitly said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, Jesus also said, that was in John uh, 9, by the way. But Jesus also said in Luke 10, I saw Satan fall from lightning from hev- like lightning from heaven. That's not the kind of thing normal people say. You know, he's just hanging out with his disciples and he's like, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. How did you see that? He's using all this divine language. It's all through the entire New Testament. What Jesus was pushing towards was, you've got to crown me or kill me. And they chose to kill him. But when you look at who Jesus was, there's such beauty and love. He is powerful and yet patient. He is transcendent yet tender. He is glorious and merciful, full of justice and beauty. You and I can look at church leaders and say, you know, oh, what a glorious disappointment this person is, or they don't resemble Jesus. We can look at churches and say, that church is a mess, it doesn't resemble Christ. We can find, we can be disappointed by people in the church easily, but you will not find your disappointments and your criticisms in Jesus. So let's move on. From this Antichrist teaching, and that was sort of the messaging that was to the church, He says that the Spirit of Christ gives discerning power to the church. You see it in verses 20 and 21 when he talks about them being anointed. And he uses this language where he seems to be saying, listen, um, you guys aren't going to be deceived. It's like this is the original 
recording of I'm preaching to the choir. That's how you could summarize that. He's like, you know, I'm not telling you this because you don't know it. I'm telling you this because you know it. You believe it. You're anointed. You're full of the Spirit. You have the Holy One. What is all this language? Anointing is a, is a graphic image of oil being poured on someone in the Old Testament who is being empowered for specific duty. Prophets, priests, and kings. They were anointed. And in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, the church, we are metaphorically referred to as prophets, priests, and kings. It's a way of saying we are the children of God who are called to live out and reflect his love in the culture, and we are being anointed by the Holy Spirit to do this. So it's not some special power for certain Christians who are like, whoa, that's crazy, they're so anointed. This is saying all believers who are united to Christ have the Holy Spirit. We are all anointed. That's why he uses the language, you all have knowledge, verse 20. You all have knowledge. Verse 27, that's why he's saying, you know, you don't need anybody to teach you. Well, we have to understand this correctly. What could he possibly be saying? People have misinterpreted this passage, the Quakers, the mystics in church history. Oh, the Bible says we don't need teachers. Therefore, I listen to the inner light. I just continually curve in on my thoughts, my ideas, my emotions, my, my desires, my inclinations, and whatever leading I sort of feel I have in life, I just say the Spirit led me to do it. That's mysticism, and that's what the Quakers were up to. What is John saying? He can't possibly mean in a literal broad sense that no Christians need teaching because John is a teacher and this letter contains teaching. John is literally teaching. So it can't mean that. But what does it mean? Well, it's a little thing we like to call in the biz context. And the context of this is the ident- knowing the identity of Christ. You have these anti-Christ teachers teaching things that are contrary to the nature of Christ. But what he's saying is you, being full of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, you don't need this teaching to redefine for you who Christ is because you know it. It's hitting your ear differently than it's hitting everybody else's ear. The teaching is obviously necessary. Jesus said in Matthew 28 himself, go into the world and make disciples. Well, disciples means that you are on the receiving end of teaching. Who's teaching? Christ's teaching. What should our life look like? It should look like Christ's. A life of love, a life of service, a life of laying our lives down for others. It's cross-shaped. And so the Antichrist teaching was, of course, denying and dethroning who Christ was. So therefore, the knowledge that every believer has by the Holy Spirit is this innate knowing of Christ, enabling us to discern and not be moved by teaching that is anti the Lordship of Christ. What John is doing here is he is affirming that the very reason they're still in the church The very reason they're even reading this letter is because the Holy Spirit who indwells them has testified of Christ in them, and they're unmoved by the false teaching. Some left the church, but you guys didn't. Do you want to know why you didn't? Because they were never of God, of Jesus, full of the Spirit. They've moved on, but you are sitting here listening to this because the Spirit has borne witness to the truth um, of who Christ is. Which leads us to the final thing. Abiding in Christ always stabilizes and preserves the church. John was not concerned about the numbers. He doesn't even mention it. He's not like, oh, the church is shrinking. We've got to do something about it. We're losing ground in the culture. It's just none of the New Testament writers ever sound like that. Um, He's not concerned about numbers at all. He's concerned about faithful teaching and faithful doctrine about who Christ is. The scriptures almost have a divine sarcasm about numbers because God always does tremendous things, never with the majority. 
uses 12 disciples against the totalitarianism of Rome and the disciples don't rise up in some sort of political way but the, through them the gospel moves in this sort of upside down way that offends the North, Amer North American pragmatic sensibilities. It's like John is saying, breathe church. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. People will always leave the church. Someone who professed to be a teacher for years and then they leave and then they say, I don't believe in the gospel anymore. I don't believe Jesus rose from the grave and I've written a book about it and I have a podcast. Come and listen to it and I'll just break it out for you why this isn't true. I've got all these letters after my name. Trust me. It's always been this way. And John is saying, like, don't be moved by this. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 when people were leaving the church and Timothy was depressed about it, leaving the faith. Paul writes, the Lord knows who are his. The foundation is sure. And 2,000 years later, here we are, still praising him, still talking about it. It's always been this way. And so he wants to draw the church into this sense of stability about it. There's always somebody who's crunching the stats and crunching the numbers and freaking out. But the problem is when you freak out about people leaving the church, um, you can fall in various ditches. Two of them being, you know, one being... Well, the way to keep people in the church is water down the teaching. Then less people will leave. So make it less offensive. Don't say anything that offenses the modern sensibilities. Water the teaching down. Then people will stop leaving, and we've solved that problem. So that's one ditch. But the other ditch is to say, sort of freak out about it and be like, man, we gotta, I got to fire up the base, and the church is losing ground in the city, and it becomes very triumphalistic. And then we do what the disciples did, and we misunderstand what Jesus wanted, and we make the church sort of political, and then the church has this ugly baby with politics. And in the same way that the disciples thought, well, Jesus is surely, surely going to overthrow Rome. I mean, that's why Jesus came, right? He's going to restore Davidic Israel and we're going to be on top. And the Christians are going to be in charge. And then we can sort of legislate for the rest of the culture, the Christian ethic. That's what Jesus is up to. Jesus was never up to that. Jesus was not up to anything political. Jesus was up to something that was global and relational and eternal. The wonderful grace of drawing his children to himself. That's what Jesus has always been up to. But when you freak out about the numbers, then it somehow becomes political. We're losing ground in the culture. And they freak out about it. But Jesus didn't do either of those things. And so John says, in a great contradiction to the idea of, well, we're going to change the game here. He uses the language of that which was from the beginning. See, what the Antichrists were doing then, the Gnostics were doing then, and Neo-Gnosticism does now, is they say, well, progress is better. Um, we can't, I have secret knowledge. We can't just keep saying and trusting the institution of 2,000 years of church scholarship, so we've got to kick that to the curb, and we're going to start with a fresh slate of paper, and we're going to kick the ladder out and start over, and, you know, we're going to make some progress here. Progress is better. But I want you to notice the language of John as it relates to the Antichrist. He said, so progress is not better. Verse 24, that which you heard from the beginning is better. That's on a collision, that's on a collision course with all anti-Christ teaching that wants to dismantle what's been from the beginning. Right? Well, isn't, isn't change progress? Well, not if you're on the wrong road, it isn't. If you're on the wrong road, a U-turn is progress. And so John is saying, guys... Um, that which is from the beginning is not old. Our God is not old. He's eternal. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, if it's not eternal, then it's eternally out of date. And so, though we live in this sort of this resurgence of the 
you know, the deconstructionism. Um, we don't want to get caught up with any of this any more than the first church was to sort of get caught up in, in any of it. And so we want to return to that which was from the beginning and faithfully um, and walk out the glory of, of Jesus, his love and his teaching, and bend our knee to his lordship, even the parts of his scripture that offend us or the parts of his, uh, the wise guidance of God's word that even contradict us, the reason we would bend our knee to it is because he wasn't just a nice teacher. He is God. He's who he said he was. And therefore, the most reasonable thing for me to do is to bend my knee to his wisdom and trust that his wisdom is for my flourishing and it's wise and it is loving and it is good. If in the first century when John was writing this, if faithful Christianity looked like groups of people just getting in houses and not caring about what the apostles had taught, the basis of which the church was founded, Ephesians chapter 2, the very teachings of Jesus that the apostles conveyed, if they just kind of sat down and said, well, you just kind of think about it what you think about it, the church wouldn't have lasted two generations, let alone 2,000 years. So when you look at verse 24, he says, let that which was from the beginning abide in you. Who Jesus said he was. What he had come to do. That he has uh, fulfilled all things. That he has provided everything for us so that God would receive and accept us. And we trust in his perfect life, his atoning death, his divine resurrection. This abiding that John uses, he uses it a lot in his, in his language. It's this reflecting and worshiping and confessing. It's this meditating. It's, it, it's something that as the people of God, we don't need to force it on ourselves. We can't help ourselves. Do we struggle in our faith? Yes. Will our kids struggle in their faith? Yes. Does our faith sometimes falter? Yes. Does the faith of our children sometimes falter? Yes. Will our faith fail? No. That's what he's saying here. He's using strong language. Abide in that which was from the beginning. He doesn't even waste any papyrus naming all these names and writing lists of people that they shouldn't be following. He's spending all of his time pointing them back to the goodness of Jesus. It's a provocative statement that John gives. You already know this. The Spirit has anointed you. And so I want to close with this, with this image that John gives us here. You know, we have a number of infants here at Redeemer. Seven, I think, with more on the way. And an infant knows whether or not it's in the arms of its mother. It knows. It's not just any warm body will do. Any set of arms will do. I can't tell the difference if it's my mom holding me. Or An infant knows. It's intuitive. And when you look at verse 20, when John is um, using the word know, you know this. The word in the Greek that he chooses, up, up until this point he'd been using the word um, engakote. And engakote means a knowing of experience. But here he changes from using the word engakote and he uses the word oidate. And oidate means you intuit it. You're like that child that knows whose arms you're in. And John is saying, you know. This is the good news of the gospel. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, Jesus says in John 10. The advocate will come, the spirit will testify of me, John 15. This is the message that we have heard from the beginning. That all of creation will be restored because of what Christ has done, the reanimating power of the Holy Spirit as we live uh, according to his uh, ways. 
Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16. This passage is saying to us, breathe, little children. Christ's church, united to him, is indestructible. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise which he has made to us, eternal life. Let's pray.